Well, it really is encouraging to see um, this many friends gather together for one purpose, and that is just to improve as folks who want to pour into their kids. And the stakes are high. They are really, really high because we are raising those that will lead us in generations to come. And uh, we are building into our kids, like it or not, the fabric of their future days. You know, I, I, Kyle, I'm really humble. I've never ever heard what you just said before, man, and that really touches me. But I want to tell you, as I was thinking about just what to throw on as I came down here tonight, I put this shirt on very intentionally because <laughs> uh, I am on the journey with you. I am very much on the journey. And I will tell you my most consistent prayer that I have for my kids, and that is, Lord, build into them everything that is in me that is in love with you and spare them from all that is yet to be conformed into your image. And when I look at my kids, okay, uh, I see both things happening. I, I see, by the grace of God, some things that he's taught me being embedded into their life. And I see, painfully sometimes, things come up in their interactions with one another that I recognize as the way that I interact with them and with other people. And so I am on the journey with you. And I want to tell you, though, the journey that I am on is a very intentional one. I am not just kind of haphazardly wandering through this parenting game. I am being as intentional as I can. I am uh, seeking to persevere in it. And I know where I am going. Seneca, who is a Roman historian and philosopher who actually lived uh, during the exact same time as Christ. He lived from 5 B.C. to 65 A.D. And uh, this is a guy that uh, I've heard a lot of quotes from him across the years, but uh, one of my favorite Seneca quotes was that if you do not know to which harbor you are sailing, then you will never know what wind to catch to take you there. And, and I want to share with you guys that what we're going to try and build into uh, our own lives and encourage each other towards this next uh, 24 hours together is we, we want to know what harbor we're sailing to. And this journey shirt has a double entendre. We are on that journey towards that harbor with our kids. And as we journey the way that God wants us to, through his word, towards Christ, that's, that's the wind that we want to catch to get us there. Kyle's going to spend his time with you guys tomorrow in kind of the plenary session talking about the central passage in scripture about parenting. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 6. And it will reinforce again and again and again uh, how we are to raise up our children, and how God says it's not really a class, it's not any moment, it is day by day as you go throughout life. And, and the most uh, powerful times you'll have will be teachable moments that you don't even know are coming. Or labs that you ran and lectures that you executed when you didn't even know you were in class. And so we want to be around each other, encouraging each other this weekend to remember that all of life is a lesson for our kids, and they are watching. One of the sessions we did at the last parenting conference that we are not doing at this one, uh, that you can pick up on the, on web, the web for free, but that is, is um, very consistent with what uh, we already announced. I want to remind you what he said. Mike Mann is going to be on a little booth out there that'll be very easy to find. I don't know exactly where it'll be, where you can get connected into a community of friends that are going to journey with you uh, if you're not currently in a community that's going to do that. We, we did an entire session on parenting together in the last conference. And we had just a, a community of friends that were up here, and they talked about how they shared um, the privilege and responsibility of molding and shaping and building into each other's kids' lives. And so we're not doing that one of our large breakout sections, but if you are not connected with a group of friends that love Christ or that want to uh, pursue loving Christ more, let me encourage you to make sure you stop by that table. 
before you leave this weekend, okay? I am a very imperfect parent. And uh, those of you that know me better than others know, you've seen me make mistakes with my kids. I've made them. I'm making them. Uh, But by the grace of God, I am doing some things well. And it's because uh, God has allowed me to stumble on to his truth. And by his grace, is grabbing more and more my heart. So uh, my father's heart is consistent with his father's heart. And so what I want to do tonight is encourage you. I want to uh, give you a vision. And I'm going to give you one very practical thing that I've done with my kids. And just unpack that one practical thing that I really think will bless you. And will bless your kids if you do it. All right? Um, And so I want to just pray for us. And then we're going to dive in. All right? Here we go. Lord, it's so great to be here. And it's the end of a long week. There are other places that we might want to be or feel like we need to be, including with our kids. You know, I'm just sitting here and I just realized that when I'm speaking at a parenting event that uh, I'm not with my children, which is what I long to be. And I know that there are many other moms and dads that are here that feel the same way. After a long week of work, here they are away from their kids again. How can I parent them if I'm not away from them? But it makes sense, though, that we go away sometimes to a lonely place and we work on, uh, those of us that are married, we work on our relationship knowing that our kids are going to primarily learn what a marriage is like by watching us. They're going to learn how a woman should be treated and what she should expect in a man by watching the way that dad treats mom and the way mom responds to that. They're going to watch the way that a man should go through life by watching us, what a man should be committed to by watching us. And so we need to get away and let you, the only perfect father, remind us how we should then live so that our kids might experience the blessing that you long for us to experience as we pay attention to you. So, Father, may we pay attention to you so that we might be parents that kids would be blessed if they paid attention to. Thanks just for a chance to be together and to learn this weekend and and to laugh a lot uh, as we learn together. And I pray you use this time. Protect our kids. Lord, we're away from them. And just in some miracle of grace, grow their hearts until we get to hug them and hold them and lead them again. Amen. Well, I wanted to start with this because, you know, parenting is one of those deals that you kind of can get overwhelmed by very quickly. And, um, and, you know, even some folks here, is there anybody here who doesn't have kids yet? Just about ready to get some? There's a couple, okay? Excellent. All right. About five or six folks who are about to enter into parenting, they think sometime in the future. The rest of us have kind of got into it. But do you remember that moment when they kind of handed you a live baby and said, you know, you can leave the hospital? And you're like, oh my gosh, are you serious? I mean, this is mine. I'm responsible for this thing. And so a long time ago, I came across this thing. And I just think it's hilarious. I'm going to read it to you. This is how you can tell whether or not you're ready to have children. Okay, and so they put you through a series of tests. And so here we go. Uh, those of us that have kids can recognize why these things are in the test. Those of you that, that don't yet, I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to figure it out as well. First of all, here's the mess test. Uh, smear peanut butter on the sofa and the curtains. Put a fish stick behind the couch and leave it there all summer. If it doesn't bother you, you might be ready for kids. Toy test. Obtain a 55-gallon box of Legos. If Legos aren't available, you can substitute roofing tax. Have a friend spread them all over your house, put on a blindfold, and walk to the bathroom or the kitchen without screaming because you don't want to wake the kids up. I like this one. Grocery store test. Borrow one or two small animals. Go to the best. And take them with you as you shop at the grocery store. Always keep them inside and pay for anything they eat or damage. Dressing test. Obtain one large, unhappy, live octopus. 
stuff a small net bag into a small net bag, making sure that all the arms stay inside. Feeding test. Obtain a large plastic milk jug. Fill halfway with water. Suspend from the ceiling with a stout cord. Start the jug swinging. Now try to insert spoonfuls of soggy cereal into the mouth of the jug while pretending to be an airplane. When you're finished, take all that's inside the jug and dump it on the floor. Night test. Prepare by obtaining a small cloth bag and fill it with eight and a half pounds of sand. Soak it thoroughly in water. At eight o'clock, begin to waltz around and hum with the bag until nine. Lay down your bag and set your alarm for ten. Get up, pick up your bag, sing every song you've ever heard of. Make up about a dozen more and sing these until four a.m. Set the alarm for five. Get up, make breakfast. Keep this up for five years and look cheerful. That's <laughs> JP. He's got a newborn. He's like, yes, we are doing that right now. All right, here's one for women. This is to see if you're ready physically. Obtain a large beanbag chair and attach it to the front of your clothes. (laughs) Leave it there for nine months. Now, remove ten of the beans when you're done. (laughs) That is awful. I know some of you guys could take like 15 out. It would still still be uh, a real thing. All right, here's the physical test for men. Go to the nearest drugstore, set your wallet on the counter, ask the clerk to help himself. Now proceed to the nearest food store. Go to the head office and arrange for your paycheck to be directly deposited to this store. Purchase a newspaper. Go home and read it quietly for the last time. <laughs> uh, you know, I still, I still uh, subscribe to the newspaper just, just out of sheer will. I, I don't read it. it. It usually is not taken out of the bag, but I get it, just, just in case. I don't know what, but I still get it. Uh, Final assignment, find a couple who already has a small child. Lecture them on how they can improve their discipline, patience, tolerance, (laughs) toilet training, and table manners. Suggest many ways they can improve. Emphasize to them that they should never allow their children to run wild. Enjoy this experience. (laughs) It will be the last time you ever do it. That is just really funny. That made me laugh when I read that. I thought it would be fun. You know, there is a a book out by George Barna who does a lot of uh, survey stuff just to kind of help us advance the kingdom and understand different things. And the book that he wrote is called Revolutionary Parenting. He said he did not want to write a parenting book because he, he knew he wasn't an expert on parenting. And, he, and it was just a deluge of parenting books that were out there. But what Barnard did that was different is that rather than come up with a bunch of theories and psychological practices and cultural expectations that would be uh, suggested so that you could become uh, this great parent, he decided to work backwards. He started by identifying desirable attributes that we would all want to see in our children. And then specifically, he came at it with a bias that our children are created primarily for a spiritual purpose. And so what he did, literally over 10,000 20-somethings were interviewed until they found a large sample of 20-somethings that these five things were true of them. They were knowing, loving, and serving God. They identified as the top priority in their life. Um... These, these 20-somethings that became his primary uh, group to assess, okay, um, which were, were just right at a 1,000 of them, described their faith in God as being of the highest importance in their life. Each of the young adults in this pool of a 1,000 uh, possessed a biblical worldview based on their responses to a series of questions about their view of life. In essence, they contended that absolute moral truth exists, that such truth is identified by the Bible, that God is the all-knowing and all-powerful creator and rule of the universe, that faith in Jesus Christ is the only means to salvation, that Satan is a real being, that Jesus Christ lives a sinless life on earth, and that all of the principles taught in the Bible are true and accurate. So we found over a 1,020-somethings that held to those views. 
And then uh, they, they stated that their main purpose in life was to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he found 20-somethings that were currently active in a vibrant community of faith, as demonstrated by their consistent engagement in worship, prayer, Bible study, and spiritual accountability with other believers. And what he did is he interviewed those thousand people again, and then he interviewed their parents, and he came up with some things that he said this was consistent all the way through the way that these kids were raised and the practices that their parents performed. Now, a couple of things that jumped out in, uh, in this book, it's only 200 pages long, it's called Revolutionary Parenting. He just said there's a lot of folks in the way that they parent that can be found to be parenting differently. Some folks parent by default, which is, in other words, they just take the, the path of least resistance. They uh, kind of work their way through, they do whatever comes naturally to them, whatever cultural norms and traditions allow, they just kind of move along and parent by default. There's another group that he said are called trial and error parents who really believe that, um, that uh, everybody's an amateur when they raise a parent, and so they just don't have any real absolute guideline to follow. And so all they really try and do is to learn as they go, improve as they go, and perform better than most parents. He said, but the parents that produced, and he said only one out of ten twenty-somethings that they interviewed had those attributes that I talked about. He said the parents that produced those kind of children, the families that they came from, uh, had a uniquely different set of uh, attributes and practices about them. And I'm not going to go into all of them, but suffice it to say is they had a certain set of non-negotiable priorities, they had a certain set of non-negotiable boundaries, and they had an understanding that they were a parent. Now that seems really odd that that was one of the six things. In other words, they, they understood their role. And I, I want to tell you, I want to read this one little deal before I, I go through and just make a few of my own observations and share with you some things. A long time ago, a, a friend of mine was um, actually a guy that I got to know who was a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals in the... In the Late 80s, and uh, I don't know if Todd hung around in the early 90s. I think he went to the Dodgers. Todd Worrell. Some of you guys may remember him if you were baseball fans in the 80s. But Todd came to know the Lord, and uh, he kind of made his own baseball card, so when he would go out and speak different places, uh, he would have it. And then on the back of the baseball card, this is what he wrote. Uh, it was a deal that was around for a while, but he wrote this on there, and I think it was really good. And I'm going to show you that this is really the heart of God towards us, and I think it's the heart that we need towards our children. And it's just a fundamental understanding about parenting that I think our society has really, really lost. And uh, this is what it says. It says, Dear son, as long as you live in this house, you will follow the rules. When you have your own house, you can make your own rules. But in this house, we don't have a democracy. I did not campaign to be your father, and you did not vote for me. We are father and son by the grace of God, and I accept the privilege and awesome responsibility uh, of, of being your daddy. In accepting it, I have an obligation to perform the role of a father. I am not your pal. Our ages are too different. We can share many things, but we are not pals. I am your father. This is a hundred times more important than what a pal is. I'm also your friend, but we are entirely different levels. You will do in this house, as I say, and you cannot question me because whatever I ask you to do is motivated by love. This will be hard for you to understand until you have a son of your own. But until then, you've got to trust me. I'm your father. Now, the, the reason I like to read that every now and then is because, A, I want to make sure that that's what I'm doing, that I, I'm not trying to be my kid's friend. I mean, and by that I mean do whatever I can to get them to like me. That's, by the way, not a good definition of a friend anyway, but it really is how a lot of folks define friend. 
I want to go back and just ask myself what turns out to be one of the six major things that Barnes says produces the kind of kids that I think we all dream about. And that is they understand their role in being a parent. Now, what does that mean? I want to tell you a part of what I think it means is that you are an individual that takes it seriously. The fact that you're here says a lot about you. Because I know, gang, I know how hard it was to get here. I was speaking, and I thought about not coming. All right? So I, I can't imagine what you felt like. Uh, so I, I really, I want to tell you, I mean, you're taken seriously. Uh, the gig, uh, John Cox and I were talking today just about how there's really three different major buckets of parents. There's, um, uh, you know, and I kind of went through and just labeled them as I thought a little bit today. There's those that, that think their primary charge is to provide life. And, and really, by, by that I mean you feed them. You clothe them, you make sure they get to school, and your entire goal is that you're not arrested for the way that you parent them, and that CPS doesn't come and take them away from you. And, and that really is just kind of that, I think what Barna, in his little deal, you know, um, just kind of called that, that happenstance, kind of make your way on your own, uh, parenting by the path of least resistance kind of a parent. All right, there's another kind of parent. And, and, and this takes a huge amount of effort to move from that, I don't want to get arrested, I don't want somebody else to have my kids in foster care. It takes a major commitment of your heart to say, I'm not just going to have my kids survive, okay, and get them off the payroll. I'm going to be a parent that, that loves their kid. This is really the second level. They don't just provide life, they provide love. Now that means that fundamentally you've made a decision that you're not going to decide on Friday, Okay, that you've had a really long, well, let me just say this. You're not going to decide every night that you've had a long day and you deserve some time to yourself, that you're ready to shut down. You're going to initiate with your kids. You're going to be with them by their bed. You're going to talk to them. You're going to engage them. You're going to understand their world. The weekends are not going to be yours because you've had such a hard week. You're going to invest in your kids. You're going to spend time with your kids, and you're going to love them. And you're going to get to know them. And you're going to um, spend time with them. Now, that is a huge commitment to just being a sustainer of life, to a source of love. And it takes a big, big act of the will. And by the way, let's just be honest. We're all going to slide in and out of these buckets at different times. But parents that win, okay, are parents that spend the majority of their time in this third bucket. And if you think it's a big move to go from being a selfish provider of life to a selfless provider of love, it takes a ton of effort to do this last one. And that's what I'm going to focus on in my little short time with you tonight. And that is parents that say, I'm not going to provide just life, sustenance, protection, clothing. I'm not just going to provide love. I'm going to provide leadership. I'm going to invest in you. I've got a design for you that's God's design. I'm going to, um, I'm going to intentionally, purposely build into you so that when I unleash you at 18, I unleash you with the fabric of greatness and that you are going to be faithful as a servant to God and man in life. Now, again, that doesn't happen by accident. I want to just tell you right now, it could happen by grace. Uh, my wife comes from an extremely dysfunctional family, and my wife has less baggage, excepting the last 18 years she's lived with me. I've created some baggage in that, and that is, that is no joke. Uh, I really have. But she... Uh, but, the, but I, when, I, when I got to know, I, Alex Watts had less baggage than any other person I'd ever met. And I just, I just when I went and understood her home, it was, she was just like a freak of history. I have no 
there's no logical way to explain how she came from the home that she did, except grace. So if you want to check out and leave now and bank on that, God bless you, all right? But I'm going to tell you, that is not normally the, the plant that grows from that flower bed. I can't explain it. Uh, I've seen it happen. But I know that that is not the normal course of things. And so I don't want to bank on that. I don't want to blank on magic beans growing this great stalk of a man. I want to invest and sow into their life the things that God says is going to make essential greatness. Now let me just show you um, what I think is one of the fundamental things that makes somebody essentially great. And that is that they have a sense of who they are and made in, as a person made in the image of God, created for a destiny and a purpose. And this is not normal, even in gifted children. Okay? Uh, turn with me, and I hope you guys have a Bible. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And, and all this is, I'm not even where I'm going to spend, uh, you know, some, some significant time with you guys tonight. But I want to just set this up. And I want to show you, gang, you are going to be an unusual person if you do this. Because you will stand apart from Eli. Eli was a high priest and a leader in Israel. Eli was a guy that at a critical moment in Israel's history, God used to, to, to lead them to make some good decisions. And yet Eli's sons were idiots. And there was somebody that God kind of raised up in the presence of Eli that began to be a leader um, after that, that that wasn't a part of Eli's family, but that had a heart after God. His name was Samuel. The amazing thing about Samuel is even though he was this great, great leader, Samuel made the same mistake that Eli made. So I want to just tell you something. Is it not a full-time job to, to be a person that can bless your country, that is a blessing to your neighborhood, that your wife says, thank you for being my king, that your husband says, what a privilege for me to walk into this house and share my life with you? That is a stinking full-time job. It is a very rare breed of human that is a blessing to those that are around them. Okay? But I want to tell you something. Even if you're an Eli, even if you're a Samuel, even if you're a David... Even if you're Solomon, and all those guys were blessings to individuals around them, guess who they were not a blessing to? Every one of them had failures in their family. So it is a full-time job to be a, a godly man or a godly woman. And I, what I'm going to try and tell you now is that isn't enough. You have got to be a godly Parent, I really do believe that your success is going to be ultimately determined by your successor. Jesus says, go into all the world and not be a faithful disciple of mine, does he? He says, don't go in the world and be a faithful king. Don't go all in the world and be a faithful high priest and judge. He says, don't go in the world and be the wisest man that ever lived. What's he say? Go in the world and do what? Be a faithful disciple maker. And I want to tell you something. You may not think you're leading a small group, but you are leading a small group. And you may give me all this humble stuff. I'm not ready to disciple somebody. Guess what? You're discipling somebody for 18 years. And you're giving them either a great burden to overcome or you're setting them up for a tremendous blessing. And as much as David was a great man, and Samuel was a great man, and Eli was a great man, okay, Solomon was a great man, they failed in this. And you cannot. You cannot. First Samuel 8, this is what it says. It says, it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Like most dads do. Say, hey man, take the family business. Now the name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his secondborn son is down there. It says, um, his sons did not walk in his ways. 
But he turned aside after dishonoring gain, uh, excuse me, they turned their heart aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now watch this. I think verse 6 tells me why Samuel was a failure as a daddy. In verse 5, they said, we want a king. Now, Samuel was a guy that loved God's word and loved the heart of God and was committed to pursuing God. But in verse 6, it says, when Israel said, we want a king, it says in verse 6, Samuel, after that statement, not after the statement in verse 3, that your sons are idiots. It was after the statement in verse 5 that we want to do what God doesn't want us to do. It says, Samuel was disappointed. When they said, give us the king to judge us. Now, I want to tell you, when I read that, I just go, oh, Samuel. How about just a verse before that when they said, your sons are idiots? Why didn't that disappoint you? I think Samuel had a heart after God. He wanted to see his nation, the people around him, really make good decisions. But you know what he failed at? He failed at making sure his sons, the only people in that nation that had him as a daddy, somehow he wasn't as passionate about them choosing something else as their king. And it led to great heartache. And so the people said they want a king. Now watch what happens after this. So Samuel says, I'm going to warn you, you don't want a king. God says, give him a king, but warn him again what's going to happen if they have a king. The king's not going to treat him like I am as their king. The king's going to kind of rape and pillage them and tax them and take their sons and take their daughters and take their crops and all that different stuff. But give him a king. And so they go on to find a king. And we know this first king, and the reason I do this is because I want to say, okay, let's not be a Samuel. Let's not be men of God who aren't concerned about the family that God has given us. Let's not be Davids who are great blessings to their kingdom, but really are not faithful kings in their home. Because I'm challenging to be more than just great, you know, faithful watermark community servants. You can't be if you're not a faithful parent. So anyway, they're going to go get a king. And so God's going to give them this king. And we're going to go over look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. Now this is amazing because this helps us as a parent. Watch this. And this will tell you what you've got to build into your kids. Uh, in chapter 9, 1 Samuel. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerah. And again, all these other great names. Uh, and it says in, he was a Benjamite. Uh, a mighty man of valor, and he had a son whose name was Saul. A choice. Now watch this, man. Wouldn't you love this? This is your son. How about this? A choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was just a stud. He was the cover of GQ, best-looking guy, best athlete in all of Israel. And you're like, yes! But guess what, men? Okay, guess what is in the heart of Saul? It is not which will make you a great king. And, and gang, a favorite story of mine a number of years ago um, was a, a GQ magazine did a, a survey and they asked men, if you could be any man for a week, who would you want to be? And so every man responded and Michael Jordan came out at that time as the guy that every man would want to be. And they went to Michael Jordan and they said, Michael Jordan, hey, can you believe this? We, we surveyed men all across you know, the free world. And we said, if you could be any man for a week, who would you want to be? And they picked you. What do you think? He goes, I'm not surprised. Who wouldn't want to be me for a week? He said, but make them be me for a year. 
Make them not just have the fun of the week when it's all new and fresh and uh, buzz and exciting and front of the line and free food and drive this and do that and have her and do whatever think is pleasurable to you. Make them be me for a year and they will see that inside of me is the same emptiness that's still inside of them. What he's saying there is, look, like Saul, by the way, okay, this is not Winston Churchill they're describing here. This is not some short, you know, you know, guy with flatulence problems. This is, this is a stud, okay? This is a guy right here that you go, hey, if I'm like Saul, I got a maid. But I want to tell you something. And I say this to you for two reasons. One, you might have a Saul as a son, and you think he's got a maid. And you need to realize he didn't have a close to maid. And in fact, sometimes when you're head tall and everybody else, you're scared to death that someday you won't be a head tall and everybody else because a lot of your significance and purpose and um, affirmation is coming from being a head taller than everybody else, a step faster than everybody else, a grade smarter than everybody else. And what if that goes? That's a very, very terrifying way to live. And so you've got a ton of work to do. You know, I, I say this. Uh, the rich are infinitely better off than the poor. They really are. I want to. I believe that, because while the poor still think that money will buy them happiness, the rich know better. Which is to say, the good-looking, popular, are infinitely better off than the awkward, unathletic, you know, awkward folks are. Why? Because those folks think if they just were like that, the homecoming queen, the athletic stud, okay, that their heart would be full. But the homecoming queen. And the stud know better. It's fleeting. And there's got to be something else in them. I also say this because if your child is like I was, uh, from, you know, I was, I was that little kid that did great, had a lot of success until I was eight or nine, and then just all of a sudden the deck was reshuffled when puberty started to move in, you know, around 10, 11, 12, and 13, you know, 16. <laughs> okay. And I was like, whoa, what happened? And uh, the world kind of passed me by for a long time. And, uh, and, and I, I really was just, uh, you know, I was an awkward looking, you know, kid from the time I was nine until the time I was really 15, 16 years old. You know, I was, I was so skinny, uh, you know, I'd like run around the shower to get wet. I mean, I was skinny, all right? And, uh, and all other kinds of stuff that kind of came with it. And, and at the same time, what God was building into me was something that made me have stuff that Michael Jordan didn't have. And stuff that the guy that was my best friend, who kind of continued on and was the starting quarterback then our senior year, never had. Because uh, I want to tell this to you. If your kid is not that kid, you have the same opportunity to make a great kid that the daddy of Saul had. You both got to do the same thing. And so be warned if you got a Saul, and be encouraged if you don't. Because that has nothing to do with greatness. In fact, Saul is going to be more difficult. Because you're going to have a harder time getting his heart. Watch what happens to Saul. Saul doesn't believe it. Saul's an insecure guy. In, in, in 1 Samuel uh, 9, uh, verse 21, this is what happens when Samuel goes to Saul and says, Hey, Samuel, you're my guy. I'm going to make you the leader. Samuel answered and said, Am I just a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? What do you mean? Why do you speak to me this way about being a king? He had an inferiority complex. And so go over to chapter 10, verse 1. Look at this. So Samuel said, look, bro, I'm going to make you 
King, I'm going to proclaim God's word to you. I'm going to prophesy over you a vision for greatness. Now watch this. Saul had a problem because he thought his family heritage wasn't going to make him great. Just like maybe your kid feels like he's not going to be great because his gene pool doesn't make him great. But what you've got to tell them both, they both need the same thing. It's the very end of chapter 9. Listen to the word of God. This is what makes you essentially great. Saul's problem, though, is he couldn't get out of the mirror. And he was scared to death he was going to lose what he had in that mirror and the popularity that came with his good looks and his height and his athletic acumen and his warlike nature. It says right here, look at this, in verse 10, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. Samuel took the flask of oil. It says he uh, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you as ruler over his inheritance? Gang, has not God, you can say this to your son, has not God made you in his image? Has he not in his perfection created you? God doesn't make mistakes. He made you just the way you are, with your severe acne, with your lisp, with your body type. He made you just the way you are. Now watch this, verse 2. When you go from me today, and he goes ahead and he tells them what's going to happen. Okay? And then in in verse uh, 9 and 10, it comes back. So he prophesied over Saul. He kind of told him what was going to happen. And then in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10, it says, all those things and all those signs came to pass. In verse 10, it says, the Spirit of God came upon him, just like any child who cries out to the Lord, acknowledges their um, imperfection as a person whose heart's prone towards the things of this world and asks for God to remake his heart. The Spirit of God will come upon him. What's going to make your child essentially great is when he begins to listen to the Spirit of God that is available to him. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you right here, your child is not going to listen to the Spirit of God unless they see you listen to the Spirit of God. And if they see you still looking in the mirror, still getting your significance from the the fact that you can wear a size 4 or size 2, or the fact that you can drive that car, you can tell them all day long that the Spirit of God is going to be the thing that gives them hope and meaning and greatness in life, but they will follow you. Okay? In other words, kids may fail to do what you say, but rarely will they fail to do what you do. One of my favorite poems from a long time ago that we taught every council that ever came through Canicut Camp, where I worked for 10 years, is a little poem by Sir Edmund Guest. I used to know it. I've got to read it now. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eyes of better pupil and more willing than the ear find counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn to do if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run and the lectures you deliver may be wise and very true but i'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do for i may misunderstand you in the high advice you give but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live and so gang i'm going to tell you you can tell your kids that god is great that he is loving and kind but they're going to watch you do you walk with this god who is loving and kind do you turn to him do you get on your knees before him do you seek his word in everything before you take your next step? Do you conform your heart to his? Are you trying to become like your daddy? Do you, do you, is he your hero? Because that's going to be your kid's hero. I tell you guys this. I've said before, you want to really know how you're doing as a parent? You go home and you ask your kids, what's your daddy passionate about? Write it down. Write down the top five things you think your dad cares about more than anything else in the world. And you can't put down you. Right? Don't put down you or don't put down mom. What, what am I passionate about in this world? Are they going to say, your business? Are they going to say, 
you know, your home, your car? Are they going to say your public reputation? Are they going to say, you know, that your heart would honor Christ in everything? God's word. What are they going to say? Because that is what you're teaching your child to pursue. All right, now, now this, this is important stuff with Saul, and I set this up because, because I want to tell you, gang, that even if you're a hero okay, to the world and look like a hero, you still got this thing going on in your heart that, that, that you've got to deal with to be essentially great. And I'm going to talk to you this morning about what I think this afternoon, this evening, wherever we're at, what makes you essentially great, okay, that I think is a gift that you want to give your kids. And I'll tell you one simple thing I did, and I'll walk you through it kind of quickly. It's not enough to be a godly person. You've got to be a godly disciple maker. That's the Great Commission. If you've got a Saul, that ain't enough. If you've got a Churchill, doesn't matter. They can both be great, but they both need the Spirit of God in their life as sovereign. So Saul, right? Saul sees all these things happening. He is anointed king um, in verse... Uh, I love this. Look at chapter 10 and verse 20. Okay? It says, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And uh, he brought the, the tribe of Benjamin. He's going to show them who their king is, and all his families. And it talks about, basically, it gets all the way down, and it gets to the family of Saul. And the Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for Saul, they could not be found. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord, has the man, this is verse 22 of chapter 10, has the man come here? Where is this guy? And so the Lord said, look, your king is hiding in the baggage. It is a, this is a funny verse. He's about to be appointed king, and they can't find him because he doesn't think he should be king because he's still listening to him. He's still looking in the mirror. He's still concerned about if people are going to embrace him and love him instead of listening to what God says he can be. Chances are Saul was around a man that did not believe what God said he could be. And maybe Saul knew the empty shell that he was, even though he was a pretty shell. I was with my little fourth grader this morning, my little girl, Landry, and it was hilarious because I just kind of asked her and a couple of the dads were with our little girls, a little Bible study. We were looking at this story specifically. And I just said, okay, yesterday, in fact, they all ran for student council offices in fourth grade and they gave speeches. And uh, I said, what if you couldn't give a speech about being secretary, treasurer, vice president, or president, and today you had to go at KPAW, the little video that you put up before those school, and the teacher went to you and said, hey, you're a leader. You're somebody that, that, um, that really gets what it means to be a great young man or woman. I want you to talk about wise choices and character and how to love others and what essential greatness looks like in elementary school. And you guys, Miss Carter's going to grab you when you get out of the car on the way to school today, and she's going to ask you to speak on KPAW. What would you do? Right? And, and we were getting ready to do this. And they kind of, my little girl goes, I'd hide in the bathroom. <laughs> I go, perfect. Look at 1 Samuel 10, 22. That's what Saul did. Okay? It, it, it would say of Landry, you know, 20 years from now in the, in the you know, uh, annals of UP history, it would say, but she hid among the urinals. All right? And, and she stopped and she goes, Dad, I'm a girl. All right? And I go, perfect. They'd never look for you by the urinals. Right? <laughs> But Saul was trying to escape that. Why? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Now, what I was trying to build in my little girl this morning is what Saul needed. Hey, if you get that opportunity, you need to be ready, not because you're wise, Saul, but because you're going to listen to what God says. If you're sitting out there and you feel completely inadequate as a parent, you might have a chance to be a good parent. Because all you've got to do is just go, okay, Father, what do I say to your children that I am a steward of? And he says, good, the first thing you've got to do is learn to listen to me. Get on your knees. Read my word. 
Don't speak unless spoken to. But listen, and I'm going to speak, and then I'm going to tell you to speak. And let me have you show them what I'm showing you. And you're going to set your kids up. Let them see you seek me. And then you tell them about how you seek me. And how you order your life. And you, you don't ever do something that isn't informed by what God says. Because they don't have the security of whatever they look like, knowing that if God is for them, who can be against them? And who's the God that's for them? It's going to get to the very place I'm about to take you. Well, the, the, this whole thing has its crescendo in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because he eventually comes out from behind the baggage. But guess what? All his baggage is still with him. And he becomes this great king. But he's not a king. And eventually, God just says, Saul, after a lot of effort to make you the man, I'm going to take my mantle off of you. Why? Because what happens is Saul never leads his people. He never acts like one in the image of God. He always lets his world influence him instead of being a sovereign over his world. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, they're told to go and to strike vengeance on a group of people that have been uh, oppressors to Israel earlier, and they're told to utterly destroy everything that they take, but they take the choicest and the finest, they keep it to themselves, and the people are then exposed by Samuel, and Saul blames it on the people, and Samuel comes to him and exposes him again, and then finally Saul just throws down and says, you're right, I've made a mistake, but I feared the people. All right, gang, this is huge. This is why most of our kids, or most kids, don't grow up to be essentially great. Because they are never taught to fear God and not man. In other words, they are never told. They are never told who they are. They are, they are prophets. They are kings. They are leaders. They are pastors. They are evangelists. They are salt and they are light. They are to change their environment by the grace and power of God. And if you're going to raise up a Christ, Christ changed his environment. To use the most uh, worn out expression of all, they are thermometers uh, that, that uh, set the temperature, or thermostats that set the temperature, and not thermometers that tell the temperature. This is who Christians, Christ followers, are. And they're willing to die setting the temperature. And this is what makes you essentially great, is when you give your life for good. Now, who's going to do that unless they know who it is that they should fear? And how are they going to learn who they should fear if they don't see you fearing that one yourself? So what do I do? What's the deal? Here we go. One of the things I decided to do a long time ago, my wife and I did, is when my kids were pretty young, I decided before they could ever spend the night at somebody else's house, that they would have to memorize Psalm 101. I just said, you guys got to memorize Psalm 101. You talk about wanting to spend the night before it's even an option. You've got to memorize Psalm 101. Why? Because Psalm 101 is David's ultimate, uh, ultimate, if you will, commitment, his manifesto to what a king should be. And what you're going to find out is that everything David said he wanted to be as a king is everything that God is. Let's look at this. I love it. I love where Psalm 101 comes in your Bible. Guess where it comes? Right after? You got it. Psalm 100. That was excellent. Very good. <laughs> See, that one gal said my dad can count to 20. Another guy said he can go over 100. So not all of you, obviously, your kids said that about you. But Psalm 101 comes right after Psalm 100. What's Psalm 100 about? 
Psalm 100 is about praising God, giving him glory for who he is, and ascribing him all of his greatness. And a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. When you get to Psalm 101, he says, After songs of praise, a psalm of practice not only makes variety, but comes, he said, in, in at this point most fittingly. We never praise the Lord better than when we do those things which are pleasing in his sight. That's a Spurgeon making an observation. This is the greatest psalm of praise in the entire Psalter, Psalm 100. If you ever get a worship leader, they will know nothing else if they don't know Psalm 100. Okay? But Psalm 101, I'm going to tell you, if you ever get somebody who worships Christ, somebody who is essentially great, they will know Psalm 101 if they know nothing else. And so what I wanted my kids to do, I said, you've got to memorize this little psalm. Now watch this. Here we go. This, this psalm, uh, it's a psalm of David. He said, I will sing of your loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. What he's going to say in this right here is that, look, I'm going to tell you who God is. God will continually be on my lips. And I'm going to talk about the character and nature of God. And so we're going to stop right here in Psalm 101, verse 1. And you just, that just poured off my tongue. I will sing of your loving kindness and justice. This, O Lord, to you I will sing praises. And what's amazing about what it says right there, he's saying, I've got a great father. He's taught me how to be a king. He's an unbelievable king. Why? Because he's this perfect harmony of love and justice. He is not love ever at the expense of justice. He's never justice at the expense of love. And if you want to be a good parent, guess what? Your kids ought to sing of your loving kindness and justice. Now, I went and I looked at all kinds of uh, parental theories. And guess what comes up up again? They use all kinds of different names. They use um, stuff like, um, oh gosh, uh, demandingness and uh, affirmation as their cross lines, you know. They use uh, legalism and support. But guess what they're really talking about? They're talking about love and justice. Now, let me show you this. we got a little chart up here. Because this is the four different kinds of, uh, of parenting styles that you can kind of come up against. Number one, okay, you, you, you can just draw this out. And by the way, I think tomorrow, uh, a lot of stuff that I'm talking about, okay, the Lord's up here, are gonna, they're taking notes and they're putting all this together. So tomorrow when you come in on your chair will be these things. So don't freak out to write it down. You'll have all these notes in your chair tomorrow when you come in here. Okay? Uh, some of the stuff we talk about. But watch this. If you are low on love and low on discipline, okay, you are probably somebody that is not going to keep your kids very long. This is kind of the one that, uh, um, this is what we would call a permissive or negligent parent. You will raise kids that are wounded, vulnerable, angry, and unrestrained. They will resent you. All right, now again, I want to tell you, just like all of us move around those different buckets at different times, you're going to find, okay, I've kind of hung out in this quadrant today. But as a matter of practice you want to look you know i want to be high on discipline and high on love without ever compromising both we'll get there so permissive negligent negligent parents raise wounded vulnerable angry unrestrained kids some of you guys grew up in those kind of homes okay now a permissive parent is somebody that's high on love but still low on discipline or low on justice you raise self-centered disobedient immature rebellious disrespectful kids that just basically rule your life and are, uh, you're setting your kids up for just a major reality check when they realize that the whole world doesn't really bow down to their little tantrums. And so a permissive parent, okay, would be somebody that is high on love but low on justice. Uh, uh, an authoritarian parent, this is important, 
authoritarian parent is somebody that is very high in discipline but does not love their kid very often. They create anxious, insecure, perfectionistic, resentful kids. Kids that are performance-based. Kids that, that uh, feel like that, that um, this is probably where Saul hung out, frankly. And, uh, and very, very insecure. And as a result of that, he thought, you know what, if, if anybody really sees me for who I am, uh, this thing's not going to fly very long. So obviously where we want to be is where Christ is. We want our kids to say, you know what, my dad had uh, you know, a, a velvet hammer that he led my life with. Just that, that, that kind of oxymoronic, perfect blend of love and justice. That's who Christ is. That's who God is. Uh, it, it, it tends, don't worry about that word induction, I, I didn't mean to leave that on there, that was just somebody else's word, but, but secure, responsible, okay, well-adjusted, and, and that resentful's wrong, okay, I'm not sure why that got there, it should be respectful, okay, uh, respectful kids, <laughs> thank you, thank you, alright, uh, didn't proofread it, uh, respectful kids, and, and what I'm trying to, what's so great about this though, is that even when you see what David is saying here is before my kingdom, I want them to know very clearly who their king serves. Would your kids say that my mom and dad are always singing God's praises in our home? If things are going well for us financially, do they take us to Deuteronomy chapter 8? And if they remind us from day one that it's the Lord that makes wealth? When things are not going well financially, Okay, are, are, are they taking us to Habakkuk chapter 3 and teaching us that, you know, though the fig tree does not produce fruit, okay, yet I'll exult in the Lord. Do you sing about the love and justice of God and do you talk about the character and nature of God as being good and worthy to be praised all the time? David said, I absolutely will and I want to lead that way with a perfect blend of that. I will sing praises. I will find on my lips a song for God. Okay, look at this, verse 2. And by the way, how does that work with your kids? You know, one of the things that I want to say, I, I ask my kids all the time, so hey, did you have a good time? Yeah, what did you guys talk about? And they go, I don't know. Go, really? Remember that little song we memorized? What a great kings always talk about. So if you didn't sing about the loving kindness and justice of your God, what were you talking about? And they kind of go, oh. Okay, and I'm trying to teach my kids to be what? To be shepherds, to be pastors, to be lovers. I, I, I'm not ever asking them to go vocationally into what I do. I never thought I would. I'd have, in fact, I'd have gotten a fight with you if you'd have told me in my early 20s I'd been a pastor. Okay, I'd have cussed you and taken a swing at you. All right? But you know what? It was the right thing for me. And so uh, I, I, I said to my kids, did you do this? Why? Tell me where you're at with God, that you wouldn't want to tell everybody else how great He is. Where have you felt the benefit of Christ lately? Where have you seen His love in your life? Where have you seen His justice? And we talk about it. Look at verse 2. I'll give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. What they're saying right here is there is no private, public separation. There is no road home rule. This week I was up in Chicago speaking at a conference. And I thought to myself, you know what, man? I am really, I, I, I pray differently for the men in our church who travel this week. Because, you know, I was just gone for three days. I was traveling with seven guys on staff with me. I was rooming with one. 
And I thought, oh man, how awful would this be? And you know, there's a lot of guys that their, their, their road game ain't the same as their home game. There's a lot of guys who do what I do, that their public platform persona isn't the same as their private home persona. And David said, I'm not going to be that kind of king, man. I'm not running a campaign. I'm trying to run a life of character. And I tell my kids, look, you know, where, where you are when I'm not looking, because I love the statement, you know, who you are when you are alone is alone who you are. Character is who you are when no one is looking. Who are you really? Is there oneness to who you are? That's what integrity means. It comes from the word integer, which means a whole number. Are you a whole person? And what this really talks about right here is that, you know, I'm going to give heed to the blameless way. Um, and I love this because, you know, what David says, think about this. I, I go back and forth being the son and being the father in this. And I want to tell you, if you lead your kids the way God leads us, your kids will say to you what David says to God in verse 2. What's he say? In verse 2, what's David say to the father in, in chapter 2? When will you come to me? Dad, walk in anytime. You won't find me quickly getting off that webpage. You won't find me sticking something, you know, uh, away that you can't see. You won't find me changing my tone. Okay? Because I can't wait for you to get home, Dad, because I know you'll be proud of me. You know, one of the things I do sometimes, I'm about to make a bad choice. I go, what if Christ comes right now? I'm saved by grace. But I don't want them to save me out of that. I don't want to see him at that moment, right? That's what 1 John chapter 2, 28 through 1 John 3, 3 says. It says the one who fixes his hope on this, okay, of living his life the way Christ wants, he can't wait for his father to come get him. And I always want to ask myself, okay, if this is the moment right here, right now, am I going to be excited that he came to me? David's saying, come on in, anytime, God. Right now, with this clicker in my hand. Right now, with this mouse in my hand. Right now, with this thought in my head. Right now, with this investment in my bank account, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for you. Come. And I, I, I want to love my kids in a way, you know, where they're, they love me and are ready for me to come. And they can't wait to see Dad. And they're excited, you know. I don't want to raise kids that are kind of those boomerang kids that never want to leave, right? But I want, I want them to want to come home. I want them to have me want to go visit. And that's what God wants. It gets better. Look here in verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Okay, so I ask my kids all the time, hey, how'd you do when you were away? Did you give heed to the blameless way? Did you set no worthless thing before your eyes? Okay. Uh, There's a lot. In fact, I wrote it down. I didn't bring it down here with me. I don't know what I was thinking, but I wrote down... I just went through, just to prepare for today, and I went through the list of the top 50 movies in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. And I wrote down all the movies, like, I, how many movies I hadn't seen. And, and there's one reason I haven't seen them. It's because I know that if I put worthless things before my eyes, it is gonna, it's going to seduce me and make me want those worthless things. And so I've missed out on a lot of hilarity. I've missed out on a lot of conversations where I can't throw in on that little scene, and that little clip, and that little comment. Because I, I didn't see it, because I don't want to see any worthless thing before my eyes. I wish I'd have brought that list of movies. Because somebody saw them. But I'll I tell you, my kids, I don't tell my kids what movies they can see and they can't see. I ask them to go to kidsinmind.com or I ask them to go to screenit.com. Okay? I see you back there. Is it, are they both .coms, Alex, or is one of them a .org? I think they're .coms. If not, you'll get there eventually. Okay? But you can go to screenit.com. 
And I just tell my kids, they want to go see a movie. I say, great, let's go check it out. Go on there and type it in. Type the name of that movie. And then it breaks it down. This is the profanity in it. This is the nudity in it. This is the sex and violence in it. This is the uh, uh, imitative behavior that's in it. And just read it. Read it out loud to me. Or just go read it. And then you come back in and tell me if you should see that movie. And then after they make a decision they should, I'll go back and read it. And I might sometimes go, really, let's evaluate that. Do you think that's a good decision? What's that psalm you memorized? I will put no worthless thing before my eyes. Look at verse 3, how it continues to break out. I hate the works of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. So, you know, I'll I tell you what. A lot of us, not only do we know evil, we celebrate it. You can't tell your kids to love what is good, and then all of a sudden say, well, when you're a parent, it's different. If it's evil, it's evil. And, and that's, gang, this is not a legalistic thing. This is just a matter of the heart. And so you've got to ask yourself, hey, are you just having your kids memorize Scripture or are your kids watching you walk in the midst of it? Because they're going to learn real quick what you say is important and what is really important. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. And so my wife and I have got to make sure, okay, that, um, that we make choices that we want our kids to make. And are there certain things that I can process? One day I'm going to let my kid watch Braveheart. One day we're going to watch Saving Private Ryan. I think there's a breast that comes through in a veiled way in Braveheart, if I can remember correctly, very quickly. Uh, I think there's maybe an inappropriate word or two, maybe an F-bomb that drops in Saving Private Ryan, but it's got some redemptive value through there that I'm going to be able to walk through with him at a certain age. But there are other things that I won't. You know, I, I, I recently challenged some of my friends. You know, I, I don't think that drinking is the thing which determines whether or not you're a follower of Christ or not. I just don't. But I, I choose... You know, by and large, to not participate in that because I know how it affects other people. And recently, we know that drunkenness is a sin. We know that. But I'll tell you what else is a sin. Not eat or drinking to the glory of God. There was recently a group of Watermark friends that were together, and my kids were in their presence, and, and there was a big party that went on all day, and everybody had a nice time, and then all of a sudden, kind of, most folks kind of went back home, and a group stayed, and then when everybody left, the parents that were there very innocently started saying, hey, you know what, let's have a bottle of wine. And all of a sudden, my kids just observed a different level of excitement on their face. And they didn't get drunk, but it was like, now the real party can start. We'll just have this bottle of wine. This is awesome. And they just kind of made a big deal out of the wine. One or two glasses, no drunkenness. But something communicated that, oh, I see. It's nice to have friends together. It's nice to have a crawfish bowl. It's nice to have a good time. But if you really want to have a good time, you eventually got to you know, have a little bit of this kind of substance. And that communicates. You know, and if you can't have a nice meal without a glass of wine, that communicates to your kids. If you can't have a nice uh, ball game without a glass of beer, that communicates to your kids. And so, you just got to be careful. That's all I'm saying. Because they will watch you, and what you do in moderation is a good chance they're going to do in excess. Because the world's telling them that just not one or two glasses is fine. The world's telling them you got to go ahead and get after it and experience some other joy from it, not just the fact that you're mellowing. All right? So you just got to figure that out. Just got to figure that out. And uh, they'll watch. You know, the reason in verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. And I love this because it, it says right that I hate the works of those that fall away. Okay? It doesn't say, I, I, I won't support it in any way. I won't rent it. I won't TiVo it. I hate it. And gang, if you don't hate it, whatever it is that should be hated, they're not going to. 
If there's a public-private difference, oh, don't talk about the fact that we did that. They're going to go, I, I get that. I, I understand we've got to keep our reputation up, but not hate stuff. Okay, the reason that we put no worthless thing before our eyes is because, and I, I, again, this is a simple way for me. As my kids go away, I have them quote it, and then I say, what's that mean? I'll ask them. And so when they get over there and someone wants to watch a movie, they call me and they say, hey, can I watch this movie? I go, why are you calling me? Show your friend what screenit.com is. Look it up together and read it and determine if you guys should watch it together. Be a king. Okay? And go love them. And so, um, you know, here's why. You go to Genesis chapter 2. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes and good for food, okay, and she saw it would be pleasing to the flesh, she took. You go to uh, Joshua chapter 7, and it talks about Achan. And uh, it says, when I saw that the mantle and I coveted it, I took. Why are you surprised when you find yourself in this awful place when you keep putting yourself before these things? Because here's the progression every time. See, want, take. It's why they advertise. Okay? Because if you see it, you want it, and eventually you take it. And so what David's saying is, I can't go there. Guess what? David did not quote to himself Psalm 101, verse 3, one day, when he should have been out at war with the rest of the kings in springtime, and he got up and took a stroll, and he saw, and he wanted and he took. All right. Man, there's so much stuff here. I, I'm, I'm just going by, but this is, a, this is just a, a simple way. All right, you get to verse 4. Do this. Do me a favor. Turn to Proverbs 6. i only got a few more minutes because I'm going to stop. But what I'm trying to show you is I, I took a practical thing that I want to build into my kids, and I said, hey, here's the deal. I want you to be free, but you need to be free to live wisely. So you're not going to be a slave to the world and a slave to other friends. And you can, you can rule your world. You can manage your world and not let your world manage you. Why is that important? Because that's God's decree over them. Okay? What do you mean, Todd? Well, when God created humanity, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then what's he say? He says, rule over. And he mentions all of creation. And so I tell my kids, you've got to rule over your world and not let your world rule over you. And so here's a way to rule over your world. Now, in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, this is what it says in verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. David loved his father. He loved his father. So as David writes Psalm 101 verses 4 through 8, guess what he's going to do? These seven things that are about to show up, okay? It says there's six things the Lord hates, these seven which are an abomination to him. He lists seven things there, and it is the rest of Psalm 101. And what's fun for you to do is go write down... You know, Psalm 101, and then you go write down Proverbs 6, uh, 16 through 19, and then write down the seven things and just draw lines around that one thing over to where it is in Psalm 101. Because David said, I love my dad. I want to walk like my dad walked. So what are the six things, seven things even? And it says, number one, there's a haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who uh, utters lies, and uh, one who spreads strife among the brothers. Now look at this, verse 4. A perverse heart shall depart from me, which is a heart that devises wicked plans. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, that's number 7. 
One who puts strife amongst the brothers. Him I will destroy. I talk to my kids all the time. What are you going to do when you're over at Mary's house and Mary starts talking about Sally? If you're a good king and a good queen, what should you do? You stop right there. Okay? And you say, wait a minute. I tell my kids early on, look, guess what you can know? If somebody's talking about someone else behind their back, that means they're going to talk about you behind your back. And be a good friend. You want unity in the kingdom, not divisiveness. And so stop it. Say, hey, you're not going to go that way with me. Please don't say that again. I'm going to stop you because I know, and what I want you to know is that if Sally said that about you, Mary, I would stop her too. I like Sally. And if we think there's something in Sally's life that is not inconsistent and is inconsistent with who she is, let's go tell her. You know, I did that one time with one of my daughters. We got a call from a mom who was distraught because her daughter was being, um, you know, uh, victimized at school because there was an I Hate Ashley fan club that was started in fourth grade. And word got around that Allie was in it. And so I go, Allie, what is this? And she goes, Dad, I, I'm not in it, but I was standing there. I heard him talking about it. I said, well, let's go. Where are we going? I said, we're going to go over to the I Hate Allie fan club. We're going to talk to him. And we went from house to house to house. And Allie asked every one of those girls forgiveness. Even though she didn't form the fan club, when she was in it and those girls were saying that, she didn't say, you guys, stop it. Okay, Ashley's got some issues. Okay? She asked every one of the friends in the I Hate Ashley fan club forgiveness for not being a good friend to them by stopping them as they tried to handle the abuse that Ashley was putting on them by, uh, by, uh, by getting meaner back to her. And guess what we did after we went through all the I Hate Ashley fan club people? We went to Ashley. And Alice said, I just got to ask your forgiveness because I was not a good friend to you. When they were speaking poorly of you, I did not stop it. I've never been a member of it, but I stood there in the club and therefore... By guilt, I am associated, and I need to ask your forgiveness. And then I said, Allie, what else do you want to do with Ashley? Look her in the eye and say, Ashley, if you want to know why you're having a hard time with friends, I'd be happy to tell you if you want to know. And then she told her. And just very lovingly said, Ashley, this is what's going on. This is why the girls are responding that way. But again, it didn't give me permission for condoning it, and I need to ask your forgiveness. Why? Because that's what lovers do in fourth grade. That's what we're supposed to do when we're 40. How are we doing? See, look at this. It goes on. It's so good. You can go right through this, and I'm almost done. Okay? Um, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, I showed you that one. No one who has a haughty look. That's the very first one. God hates haughty eyes. And an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. Proverbs 13.20 says that. Okay, why? He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Who's going to minister to you? Man, choosing your friends is everything. I talk to my kids about that all the time. Seven, he who practices deceit, there's the lying tongue, will not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood, there's the one that... um, that is a false witness, shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, those that run rapidly to evil, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Gang, here's what I want you to know. The reason I did that is because early in my kid's life, I knew that God gave me some girls, I knew that God gave me some boys. So I sat down and go, what's a godly girl look like? What's a godly guy look like? And what's the destination? And so I came up with five things that made a godly man. A godly man steps up, that's Ezekiel 22. A godly man speaks out, that's Proverbs 24. A godly man stands firm, that's 1 Corinthians 15. When, when you speak out and people give you a hard time, a godly man stays humble, he's never done bacon. That's 1 Peter 5. And so even though you're doing great things as you step up and don't, you know, you reject passivity, and even though you speak out and you stand firm, you realize that there's still some ways that you can learn that you need to step up, speak out, and stand firm. So you stay humble and you stay teachable. 
And a great godly man serves the king. And I go, okay, I've got little girls that I'm raising. What's the five things for them? Okay, a godly gal serves first. That's Genesis 24. That's what makes a woman really stand out. Okay, guess what else a godly woman does? She speaks faithfully. That's Genesis chapter 2. It's not good for men to be alone. So even though you're a gal, guess what? Men need you. Girlfriends need you. So speak up. Don't ever condone sin in a man, ever. And if all the men are idiots, be a Deborah. Speak up. Speak faithfully. Show real beauty. That's Proverbs chapter 31. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she's to be praised. Okay? Stay humble, no matter how much you serve first, speak faithfully, and show real true beauty about what it means to fear God. Stay humble, and then seek God. Don't seek a spouse. Seek Him with all your heart. It's Matthew 6. So I say all that, and I go quickly in purpose, because what I want you to do is figure out where you're taking your kids. And I'd start by going, God, what do you want a guy to be? What do you want a woman to be? And then just, if you, can you think how, how few parents do this? They never start and go, what am I trying to produce here? If you're trying to produce somebody who goes to church, guess what? See America today. Because we've got generations of parents who try to produce kids who go to church. And guess what? 80% of them don't go. 80% of them walk as soon as they get an opportunity. And I'm trying to raise a group of men and women that will be the church in a dark and godless land. If there's no church to go to, they'll start one. And so should you. But it's not going to happen by accident. So you just can't provide life, gang. I'm not asking you just to provide love. I'm asking you to provide leadership. Where are they going? What's your plan? I'm proud of you for being here. Okay? And for starting to put a plan in place. Father, I thank you for my friends. And uh, it's so easy to get overwhelmed. And I, all I want to do is just sit here and say, man, just today, make me a better dad, a little bit better dad than yesterday. And, and maybe I need to take some time away and just start to go, oh, I've never really thought what I'm trying to produce. And so, Lord, just show me. And, Lord, thank you for community because I can get around other people. And, and I, can, I can say, what, what do you guys think? Where can we go? How can I say this in a creative and fresh way that can capture my kid's heart? How can I pursue that? I never had a dad that taught me that. Oh, Father in heaven, reparent me. Show me who you want me to be so that I can um, chase after you with all of my heart. I thank you for my friends in this room tonight, Lord. I pray that their hearts would be full. I pray that you would not in any way do what I know the enemy wants to do, which is just fill us with guilt and shame. What you want to do is fill us with hope and a vision that our kids, our kids would rise up and call us blessed because, Father, we walk as your kids. In your sovereignty, you have given us to them. And so, Lord, we know that what we must do now is give ourselves to you or they don't have a chance. So here we come, Father. We throw ourselves down at your feet and we say, speak to us these next 24 hours. I pray just for marriages in this room that they'd speak to each other tonight. They'd get on their knees before they go to bed. And they would just say, oh, Father, help us. Start by by helping us to reunite in a way that our kids would want to have the kind of relationship that we have. Help us to begin to work on that. And then, Lord, help each of us to grow more passionate about you so our kids would want to have the relationship with you that we've got. Oh, Lord, help us to work on that. And then, Father, give us your word. Give us your plan. Use this community. Use these next hours to take another inch in our heart so that we can take our kids towards the blessing of their next eight decades. For your glory and our kids' good and your fame, we pray. Amen.